I would love to welcome everyone back and appreciate you coming to the Florida Keys weekly show and podcast. I'm Brett Myers, your host. As always, we have an amazing guest on the show today. Before we dig into that, let me thank our Radio World listeners out there on WKWFAM 1600 and FM 103.3 on Saturday and Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. Thanks for getting up early and listening. And also over on 93.7 NRG, 5 a.m. Sunday, even earlier. Now, again, if you don't get up that early, which I do not, my kids do and try to wake me up, but... We are on www.keysweekly.com. And of course, all your podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and so on. You can pick up the Florida Keys Weekly show and go back and hear all kinds of great guests like the Black Pumas, Derek Trucks, local sheriff, politicians, uh, friends, foes, you name it. We have a lot of fun a lot on this show. Sometimes it's serious. Sometimes we laugh. Today, I think we'll do a little bit of both. Uh, this is a very fun show. I'll give you a little background on why I think this show is going to be so fun. Now, I live in Key West, Florida, as you all know. We cover the entire Florida Keys. I think it's safe to say the Keys all fall into this description, but it particularly Key West. If you live here, you know this. You never know who you're going to run into in Key West. You can be sitting at a bar or a restaurant or an event, and you just don't know who the person is besides you. What's their life story, and why is it amazing? And I think that's what makes Key West so unique and so special. Of course, the the uh, the, the local setting and so forth. The water is beautiful, but the people make this island so special. And sometimes you run across people and you start to hear their story and you just say, no way. I can't believe this person did this or they did that. I'll give you a little background here on the Florida Keys Weekly Show. I was at an event for Samuel's House, which is a great organization. Just had a great event for them, uh, a drag show with them this past week. But a couple weeks ago, a couple months back, I was at a show for Samuel's House and they were having a fundraiser and there was a dance floor and I saw Donna Nelson. If you know Donna, she has a toy store down here, Imagination Station. She's wonderful. She and her husband. And But there was this other guy and it wasn't her husband, but he was out there dancing with her. So it seemed like it was okay because a thousand people were watching. But this guy was just different. He was having a good time. He was dancing with not a care in the world. There's just that person. Sometimes they can dance and they do it without a care in the world. So it makes them even cooler the way they dance. I'm like, this guy's cool. And I asked our friend here, Stephanie Mitchell, who was here at the Keys Weekly. And I said, who is that guy? Because she was sitting with me and she goes, oh, that's Alex Counts. I said, oh, who's Alex Counts? And she says, you need to look into Alex Counts. You should see what this guy does. He's written books. He's traveled. He's a philanthropist. He's, he's changed the world in many ways. And I'm like, yeah, I know people who changed the world. Let me look into this. And come to find out, Alex Counts has changed the world in many ways. So I'm excited to bring in today, uh, Mr. Alex Counts, who's, uh, I'll give you a little background on him. But before I do that, Alex, welcome to the Florida Keys Weekly Show. I know this is going to change your life. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) So a little background on you, Alex, and we'll dig into some things going on, particularly your newest book. And a lot of people write books and you might be listening. And before you get a little carried away, trust me, you're going to be interested in Alex Counts. Yeah, people write books. He writes books and some incredible experience based on those books and in his journey in life to give you a little background. He's a native of uh, Hyattsville, Maryland. And Alex, if I get any of this wrong, let me know. You have a wife, Emily, back at home. You have a cat named Mina. Is that the current cat? Yes. Okay. And he's also a professor at the University of Maryland. So go Terps. He's a Fulbright scholar. 
a nonprofit executive, author, college uh, professor, as we mentioned, consultant, uh, and so forth. He's also a graduate of some place called Cornell University. I guess that's easy to get into, but he graduated from there. I'm being facetious, of course. Amazing. And was the awarded the prestigious John F. Kennedy Memorial Award upon graduation from Cornell. And He's also been published in the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, amongst many other prestigious, uh, prestigious uh, outlets and publications. And as I mentioned before, he is an author. So, Alex, we can start talking about your journey and why you're in Key West and how I saw you. But before we do that, give me an idea, because you've got a book signing coming up, and this is how all, all of this came about. You've got a book signing coming up on May 25th here in Key West at uh, Island Books down on Fleming Street. And we'll be talking about that some more, but you'll be doing a book signing. This is what your third book. Is that right? This is my third book. Uh, the first one I wrote about microfinance, the work I did originally in Bangladesh, uh, that probably Stephanie was referring to. Um, but more recently I wrote a memoir about my leadership lessons, about all the mistakes I made and what I learned from them. And then the book that you have in front of you, uh, that's my latest called when in doubt, ask for more. It's basically an annotated checklist of all the success strategies and tips I've learned about management, nonprofit leadership. Uh, and I'll have those two recent books, uh, and, uh, Sue's orchard, uh, the Key West Island books has been generous enough to host it from four to six and, uh, hope people will come and join. Okay. It's going to be incredible. And here's here's how I want to kind of structure this conversation because, yeah, you wrote a book and someone says, oh, that sounds good. When in doubt, ask for more and 213 other life and career lessons. Sounds great. But let's go back a minute on what gives you a little more, I think you're being humble, a little more authority and uh, the ability to, to write uh, these books. You've got some other books out there too. Uh, Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind. Those are leadership lessons from three decades of social entre- entrepreneurship. You wrote something about small loans, big dream, how uh, Nobel uh, Prize winner Muhammad Yunus, am I saying his name correctly? Yunus and uh, microfinance are changing the world. So I want to go back to there. Yeah. You had a moment and you, I think in your bio, you mentioned Alex that you were kind of getting burnt out in a career, maybe your twenties or early thirties. And then you had this life, this journey, I think that took you to India. And I think that brings us back full circle to the book, but can you take us back for a minute? Cause I think this story is just so fascinating to how that came about and, and then what, how that sort of transpired into uh, the Grameen foundation and some different things. Sure. Um, well, back when I was in college, I was, you know, had my own, you know, brush with idealism and learned about the fact that here I was, you know, eating in the dining hall and having too much to eat, putting on a few pounds. And there were millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who were, went to bed hungry every night. And I, and being a solution oriented person raised in a family where if you see a problem, you just try to solve it. I said, there must be someone working on this world poverty problem. Who's making some headway. Let me just get behind what he's doing. And so I wrote a, a letter, an old fashioned letter, pre email to a guy named Muhammad Yunus, who would later win the Nobel peace prize. And I was honored to be with him. When no, he, why him though? How do you just, you, yeah, you, yeah, that's uh, you see Muhammad Yunus. What I, what I read about him is that he had developed a strategy to not just give like charity or relief to the destitute women of his country, Bangladesh, 90% Muslim, very poor, especially at that time. But he had said, what if we give them a loan to start a small business that can they can earn their way to out of poverty through their own labor, through their own efforts, through their own entrepreneurship? And people said, illiterate Bangladeshi women, what will they do with the loan? They'll just you know, consume it. And it turned out a lot of them were very entrepreneurial and with the right supportive structure could start earning a dollar a day, two dollars a day, five dollars a day. Next thing you know, they're out of poverty. And so he would he had been 
getting to perfect that model. And, uh, and I wanted to join to help him spread it globally. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And I spent basically my, most of my 20s in Bangladesh studying his model and preparing to launch a global organization to bring it to other countries around the world. But when I was doing that, I was so, exci- so passionate about the work that I almost burned myself out. And, uh, and I reached a point three years into my dream job running his global organization that I started. And I was, I was about a year away from burning out. And then I just said, I, I have to do this differently. And I started approaching, not just changing the world, but changing myself uh, with more seriousness. Well, and let's not skirt over the significant impact you made while doing that as you were burning out, as you say, you're down there uh, with Eunice and he is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate at the time, right? So, I mean, let's, this is not just anybody. You guys talk about creating this organization, and I'm reading the notes, over 300 employees, over a $25 million budget, all from a startup that you guys just did. Questions I have, first of all, is he's doing that in India. The, the stereotype is you can't break out of class systems there. Was he doing that for people at the time? Was that something that drew you to it? How does a loan for someone in poverty in India allow them to break through, so to speak? Well, what, what he did was uh, he was he was going against all the cultural norms of his country, which is much easier to do if you're from that country. If okay. I was coming in from the outside and telling them to do everything differently. But he, he valued women and their economic role. Uh, he felt that the banking system should serve everyone, not just the uh, the wealthy few. And so he was making a hell of a lot of progress in Bangladesh. Um, but what I was trying to do was say, how do you take this model and adapt it to Africa, to Southeast Asia, to Latin America, and ultimately to the, the United States, where it's been very successful also? And I, you know, over 18 years, I raised about $250 million uh, because that was the big barrier to people who wanted to apply his model elsewhere was money. And we we raised a lot of money. We got a lot of wealthy people and a lot of people of modest means who just said, I want to help. And we channeled their volunteering and their money to build a global movement. It's amazing to hear that. Some people talk about overcoming or, or battling poverty and world hunger. Some people buy Twitter. Some people go out and raise money and actually try and do it. You raise money. Uh, how do you raise $250 million? So how do you get people on left and right in different circles of the world to come in on one calls? It sounds like you had probably people from all walks of life participating. How does that come about? You have to be able to start somewhere and know what you're talking about. Give us a little background on that. Sure. In, in, in both of these recent books, I talked about how I began as a very reluctant fundraiser. I wanted to assign it to other people. I wanted to spend the money. I wanted to send the money to people who were becoming the Muhammad Yunus of Nigeria or Philippines or whatever. That's what I was passionate about. But I realized as the leader of this organization, uh, I needed to be the fundraiser in chief and I needed to transform how I thought about fundraising. And so one of the things I learned is that if you if you think about fundraising as a kind of a zero sum transaction is is if I've got to figure out how to manipulate manipulate you, Brit, to giving putting money from your bank account into mine into something I care about away from what you care about, uh, you know you're you're, you're going to go at it with a feeling of of kind of dread and uh, shame even. And so I I realized that there were a lot of people that care with excess money, more money than uh, I could imagine, who cared about world poverty, just didn't know how they could become. Uh, an agent for reducing it and ending it. And I had that ability. I had a network around the world that could be their partner and I could be their partner. And when you kind of get into that partnership mode of fundraising, mm-hmm. it's it's fun. Uh, and you get out of that mode. I, I tell the story in what many people think is the best chapter of my memoir about fundraising. And I talk about a woman named Jana McKinley and I'd, I'd ra- she'd given me $100,000 for a project 
And three months later, um, a better project for her, what she wanted to do philanthropically came up $350,000. And all of my staff said, don't go to her. Don't hit her up again. You see the language you use around fundraising. I'm hitting you up. Hitting you up, yeah. Uh, it's almost a violent act. And I said, listen, this project is perfect for her. I'm not. I'm, I'm giving her an opportunity. I want to give her right of first refusal for this project she will love. And my staff said, no, don't do it. And I did it anyway. Um, and mostly I listened to my staff, but this wasn't one of those cases. And she and I told her, I said, Janet, I said, I'm going to get this project funded because it's a great project, but I'm coming to you first because I think you'll love it. And she kind of kind of laughed and chuckled at you know, the fact that I wasn't coming at her in a kind of supplicant way, like, please help me, Janet. And she said, I'll do it. Checks in the mail. And, uh, and my staff were amazed. But I was by that point, I learned that that fundraising is about partnership around shared values. And if you do it right, the donor is as excited as you are at yeah. the end of the transaction. Well, that's the way it should be. And I think as we get into the book and talking about the signing, I am going to ask you, Key West is sort of known for fundraising. Yeah. Uh, we, the arts are huge here. We have a lot that we do, but a part of Key West culture and life is really participating in nonprofit, civic, different fundraisers. That's really what we do. And it's almost in a good way. I don't mean this to, to skate over the, the heart of the matter and why people do it with their true intent, but it is sort of a pastime here. It's such a big deal for people. And it's because people have big hearts here. It's a great culture. But I want to talk about how that might apply to people here who are running nonprofits, mm-hmm. who are doing fundraising, because I think that you really spoke when you say, you know, we're with Alex Counts here at Florida Keys Weekly Show. And and also, by the way, you can go to Alex's website. I meant to say that earlier, Alex, alexcounts.com, just how it sounds, A-L-E-X-C-O-U-N-T-S.com. You can learn more about Alex there. But Key West seems to be a prime place for that because it seems like we're all competing and happily trying to give as much as we can. But there's sort of a tug of war on who do you give to here, what event here, that kind of stuff. And, and I want to talk about how your book might apply more to the principle of why and how you do it. And I think what you just said feeling good about it after you write a check to somebody and knowing, Hey, I know that's in good hands with that in mind though, to go back real quick, when you have someone trying to overcome world hunger or poverty in this case, were you guys, you know, I know you're big into micro loans and some other things we can talk about is a young lady in poverty getting a loan from you guys. When you talk about the Grumman foundation, are, are you able to give someone that and they do, they get the tools to really know how to invest and save and, and not just get out of poverty, but to maintain education. Well, how, what goes into something once you get someone on that path? Well, I think microfinance and other poverty strategies, it's not the only one. They, they tend to be more strengths-based. We, we think of the poor, we think if you're poor, you must have a lot of weaknesses. And frankly, we all have a lot of weaknesses. <laughs> um, present company excluded, I'm sure. But, um, but, but the way that microfinance approaches a poor person is, what are you good at? How have you, here's a question Muhammad Yunus would ask in a village in Bangladesh. They'd just say, oh, I'm, we're poor, sir. What do, we, what do we can do? Kind of thinking that he's there to give them some sort of handout. And he would say, how have you remained alive? How have you, you know, there are not enough jobs in our country. The, the government doesn't bail you out. There's no social safety net. How you, and they say, well, sir, we, we stay alive by fishing. We make fishing nets. And then he kind of delves deeper and he says, well, you make fishing nets. Where do you get the money to buy the, uh, the thread? Well, we have to borrow from a loan shark, uh, which for them is just, they don't even think of it as a loan shark. They think of it as just the only place to get a loan. Well, what interest do you pay? 20% per month. Mm-hmm. And say, well, well, what would happen if you could get a loan um, at a rate of, let's say, 10 or 15% per year? Say, well, sir, we would be 
making a lot more money than we're making. Well, let me, let's, why don't we talk about that? So he's saying, how do you build on, and then there, and then you think, okay, they lack education, although they're still very kind of street smart, like you would have said, you know, my friends growing up in New York in the 70s, they may not be book smart. And, but one of the things they know is when they start to earn money from whether it's buying a cow and selling the milk or uh, a food processing business or buying a sewing machine and making dresses for uh, you know, middle-class kids in that village or whatever it be, they're going to put a lot of that money, especially if you b- lend to the woman, the mother, they're going to put that money into educating their child. So okay. they may have gotten to third grade barely, but if you can give them some sort of economic engine, some way to mm-hmm. capitalize their survival skills, as Muhammad Yunus would call them, um, then they're going to put a lot of that money into making sure their child gets into high school, gets into college, and that poverty cycle is broken with their generation. And and that's what every parent uh, dreamed of. And some of the, for some of them, for mo- more than you'd think, a loan of $100, 100 US dollars that you might spend out, you know, going to dinner for two here in Key West is enough to jumpstart someone's skills so they can market them and turn it into a tiny business. That's amazing. Now, it's just random question, but he's doing, uh, Muhammad Yunus is doing this and then you come in as well. Was that, a, was there any danger in that, I guess, in terms of the structural norms or people on the other side of the equation that maybe want certain systems to stay in place, offended by this or threatened by this? Is that anything you ever faced when, when you're doing something like that in a country like India? Well, first of all, I felt enormously, uh, secure and safe all the year, six years I lived in Bangladesh. Now, it helped that I learned the language. It helped that I really understood the culture. But it was, it was a very peaceful culture and very welcoming to guests. Not right. always, the Bangladeshis don't always treat themselves that well, but they always treat guests. That's kind of an Asian thing. But it is true that in the early days of Grameen, before people understood what Eunice was trying to do, the local loan sharks, the people have, that had a vested interest in keeping the poor poor, um, and that's true in every society, um, they took action against Grameen. They tried to, uh, you know, try to badmouth Eunice and say that he was up there is trying to convert people to Christianity or all sorts of other nonsense. But ultimately, uh, Eunice kind of stuck to his guns and just kept it the work and just didn't do make any politics about it or it wasn't about religion. It was just about empowering poor women. And ultimately, the society kind of uh, understood what he was about. And very rarely, I mean, you, you have... Before they digitized everything, which happened only in the last five or seven years, you would have loan officers going to a village, and I would accompany them for years to try to learn what they were doing. They would have the equivalent of a month's salary in in cash in their pot in their bag, and everyone would know the same route they were coming back from before they deposited in the bank. Wow. And almost never, like once or twice a year, would there be a someone would, would be robbed, and and inevitably people would turn in the robber because everyone knew who he was. Um, and so, and, and so in a, in a, in a place of such scarcity, he, his idealism and his honesty, uh, and his integrity about trying to empower poor women, uh, won out over opposition over people trying to take advantage or hijack what he was doing. It was, it was really quite incredible to see. That is amazing. I'm jumping all over the place. Bangladesh is what I need to keep saying and I'm, I'm jumping, but you, from there, your journey, you get a, a bit burned out. You have to, you're raising this money that you've grown this. How do you take that? You said you wanted to insert that and spread that to other places on the globe. Were you able to do that? And, and then where did, where did that lead you next? 
Well, I when I was fortunate, my final years living in Bangladesh, there was a steady stream of people from countries all over the world, from South Chicago to Nigeria to Sri Lanka to the Philippines, who were studying Eunice's model. And some of them were more serious than others. Some of them were just government officials on a junket. Um, but many of them were very serious social activists, said, this is what we need in our country. And so I kind of made a list of them, a running list of them. And then when I came back to the U.S. to start Grameen Foundation, which I did on, Mohammed Yunus gave me $6,000 to start the organization as my startup capital, which I didn't understand was not a lot of money to start an organization <laughs> How with. old were you at this time? I was 29. Okay. All right. So I was, you know, that youthful, gung-ho kind of amateurism. And I just said, 6000 Well, that'll get me through a first month and then we'll figure it out. <laughs> I would not start an organization with $6,000 now, but, uh, but we... Um, and I saw I, I saw I saw the potential of these people to become the Muhammad Yunus of their country, and and so I said I gotta I gotta raise money for them I gotta give them the startup capital after a certain point they'll be able to mobilize what money they need but they need someone to give them that initial boost just like the woman in Bangladesh needs that first hundred dollars the guy starting this in Nigeria which is a real example this great guy named Godwin. Uh, you know, he needed a couple hundred thousand dollars, and then he 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 grew into one of the largest banks in Nigeria, which is a microloan bank. And so, you know, and I had to find my voice as a fundraiser. And one of the one of the stories I tell in the book uh, was it, in five weeks into Grameen Foundation's history, when literally we were we were um, almost bankrupt because six thousand dollars doesn't get you very far running an organization in a major city. And I was. Muhammad Yunus said there's this priority project uh, in terms of taking my ideas global and I need $10.6 million. And he asked me to go find it. And, you know, when a big boss tells you to do that, you're 29, you say, yes, sir. And I'm like, how the heck am I ever going to do that? I ended up sitting across from a foundation ex executive who was working for a Wall Street billionaire five weeks later. And and I'm telling him about this project, uh, I'm nervous, totally nervous. And he asked me how much I need. And I was like so terrified to tell him how much because I thought that I might like he might call security. Like, who is this 29 year old asking for $10 million? But he wrote it down, he asked a few more questions, literally. And this is one of my big fundraising lessons. One of the ones is if you're going to ask for something important from someone, never ask for it hesitantly or apologetically. Just because you're doing it in a spirit of partnership, because it turned out that this billionaire from Wall Street, he ended up being more excited about this project because it succeeded or as excited as I was and Eunice was. And so anyway, so he $10.6 million wow. came in a year later. The, the guy who ran the foundation, his wife became the vice chair of my board. It wasn't yet really a well-run prestigious board. Um, and they started donating personally for 10 years, $5,000, which their boss triple matched every year. And I, and I say one of the, my early lessons in fundraising is if you're asking for someone for, for something important, not for like a you know, stick of gum, but if you're asking for something important for a date, for a million dollars for your charitable thing, whatever, never do it hesitantly or apologetically. Do it from a place of, I want to do something important. I want you to be my partner and I think I have a hypothesis that this might be as important to you as it is to me. So come join me. And if you don't want to, that's fine. Uh, and, and I just always submit that if I had been evasive in telling him that I needed $10 million, as nervous as I was about that, no money, his wife doesn't join our board, none of that happens. Because I, I, you, if you lack conviction and you lack that sense of partnership, you just undercut yourself and, and nothing ever happens. And so these, these lessons that I learned, including from horrible mistakes I made, you know, we built a, a global movement based on the wonderful work that this man was doing in Bangladesh. That's amazing. And and you can 
Google or, or go to Alex, alexcounts.com, learn more about that foundation, what he was doing. I do want to spend some time talking about the book. You do have the book signing coming up here, Key West Island Books, May 25th in Key West from 4 to 6 p.m. And we'll be promoting that some more uh, aside from the podcast and the show. But the books, so you said that just now very articulately, that when in doubt, ask for more, that confidence to ask for more. And then you put in 213 other life and career lessons for uh, the mission-driven leader. So who is this book for? Is it just people raising money for nonprofits? Is it for uh, a manager at a, an office? Is it for, what, what? who does this book appeal to? And give me some ideas on some of these other 213 other life career lessons that, that you find and you're proud of. Well, thank in the book. you, yeah. yeah. Well, the first book that I wrote was this kind of my memoir uh, called um, Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind. And, uh, and then there was, but there was like, I wrote 800 pages and only 300 made into that book. And so I said, what's on the cutting room floor? Well, first of all, a lot of lousy stuff that doesn't deserve to ever be published. But I, at one point I wrote, I started writing my lessons, like Rand in random, you know, what were the lessons that I learned somewhere, usually through a mistake. And one of them, the title of this book, when in doubt, ask for more, most people in nonprofits, when they get up to a point, like we've been, we've been courting you for a while as a donor, and then it gets to the point to ask you for a big gift. And a lot of nonprofits get kind of nervous. They get in this scarcity mentality, uh, zero sum, and they ask for maybe a quarter of what you might be willing to give. Okay. And, and, and I always, when, when, a, when someone says to me as a donor, as a fundraiser, I want to ask this person for $10,000. I said, are you sure you shouldn't be asking for 50? Why, if, you know, why start with a small partnership? Why not go for a big one? If they can only do 10, they'll tell you, but you won't offend them. So these were, this was a long, I wrote four, four or 500 of these lessons. And I would say 80% of them are not specific to the nonprofit type of work. Probably 20% of them are. Just, I'll give you one that a lot of people commented on. And I think it's, it's something that we men struggle with more than women. Uh, so uh, you perk up if you're a, if you're a guy out there is, is I wrote that, it, it, advice is usually not necessary in, in very sensitive situations. If someone tells you something deeply personal about themselves, a loss, a decision that they're having to make that they're very, you know, um, conflicted about, the best thing you can do is to listen, to empathize, and maybe at the end to say, is there anything I can do to serve you? Wow. What, what do most people do? What did I do before I learned this lesson? If, if, if you were telling me that your father just you know, died, we get nervous and we say, oh, um, well, let me tell you the story about when I had a loss. Yeah. And, and I just so often, and if you're telling me that your father passed away or something like that, probably the last thing you want to hear is some story from me about a similar loss, but I get nervous. I don't know what else to say. And, and so just that one, you know, I summarize that life lesson in four sentences is not related to nonprofit work is if, if someone is sharing something deeply emotional with you, just just go with it. Just listen to it, and at most say, "Is there anything I can do to support you?" Or if it's if it's some major thing they're having to. Um, so anyway, so that's that's um, and another one. I just a very simple thing, but so many people get it wrong. Nonprofits and beyond. It's is if you're going to apologize to someone, which is hard for a lot of people to do, kind of hard for me. An apology is not an apology if it has the words "if" or "but" in it. Yeah. How often do you hear that? Um, and so, and so I just, I learned these because as a leader, I was, I, you know, I had, 
I, you know, I was, I was reasonably bright. I was reasonably hardworking, but I lacked a lot of maturity. I lacked a lot of kind of life um, skills. I, you know, as, as a guy, I think we're less sensitive to certain things. And I just, and like, but I was, but I was a learner. That was my best quality is like, that didn't work. I just had an interaction with a junior employee and they came away kind of broken. What the hell did I do wrong there? And, uh, and then I would talk with mentors and I'd kind of get to the bottom of it. And the, and the getting to the bottom of it, it turned out that I wrote 500 of them, but only about 214 were worthwhile to put in a book. And that's, those are my best thoughts about fundraising, about running a board, but also just about leadership and people management and self-management. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming up on our time and I will say I, I am looking forward. I would have preferred to have read the book beforehand. That's my fault, but I'm really looking forward to reading it as I come down to the book signing and I'll have you sign my copy that you've, you've brought me here, Alex, again with Alex, Alex counts here. And if you, if you have a chance to grab the book, I assume it's on Amazon and all the places you can order a book at. Hopefully you go to a local bookstore here if you're in Key West, like Island Books. But uh, when in doubt, ask for more and 213 other life and career lessons. What I'd like about it, just from looking at it already, it's a very easy read. I don't want to skew it with the word Proverbs, but it's kind of like you've got different... You know, everybody wants to be a self-help expert today and a life coach. And I, I know there's, and I'm not making light of people that do it, but I think it helps to have the background, maybe in the experience to maybe share those thoughts. If you're going to be a counselor, maybe have the education. If you're going to talk about uh, serving on boards and maybe fundraising and tackling poverty, have the background and the experience to do it, which you have. And I like that you've really broken this down though. You know, it's not a, it's not a, chest thumping look at me book it's really kind of broken down very simple pages broad topics and it's just kind of life lessons uh, i don't keep using, using the word proverbs but sort of like these mm. these nuggets of just uh stuff that you've been through like good is often good enough and then going green and generosity to others the 30 minute rule fundraisers like you mean it. i mean you can go on and on these you could be a board member you can be the head of a board you can be a fundraiser uh this looks like it could apply to everyday life. And I, I think it's going to be exciting for me to dig through it. And if you're listening, I'm not just here to promote some guy's book and tell you to pick it up. This guy's the real deal. You really want to pick up when in doubt, ask for more, and especially in Key West, as we have fundraisers and people serving on boards. And I know when you're not on a board, sometimes maybe 20% of the people are doing all the work and all that kind of stuff. And we get caught up in it, but this really kind of digs back into the heart. It looks like of why we do it and how to make it not just fulfilling for the person you're serving, but yourself because you're the benefit. I'm sure all that's there just by me skimming through it now. And I can't wait to look through it more. Alex, you've, we could have spent another hour talking about your life, your other books. I will say real quick, I noticed in your bio though, you're up in Maryland with your wife, your um, professor there, and you're big into live music and bluegrass and you like putting on shows. Uh, we'll wrap up with that. Tell me a little bit about your passion for music. Where, where are you putting on music at? And is, is it just bluegrass or what other kind of music are you getting into? Well, I've actually started among many things. It all started in Key West 15 years ago. Okay. And I've had many Key West musicians do house concerts in our home in Maryland. Uh, Erickson Holt played there, oh, yeah. if, if you know Erickson. And uh, Ross Sermons used to come down here with the Carter Brothers Band. But just the, the short version of it, and there's, there's a life lesson here about how powerful it is to always be a novice at something, to always do something that you're kind of bad at, but you want to get good at. And so I wandered in on my 40th birthday here 15 years ago, so you can figure out how old I am. Uh, and I walked into, and I didn't, the band was playing a mix of bluegrass and blues and they're called the Carter brothers band. And if you'd asked me at the time about bluegrass, I would have said, well, bluegrass, that's like country music, but worse. 
Uh, that was my attitude at the no, time. Not, it was just Key West. This is not Nick Carter, right? And Aaron. So, right. cause they do run around here. So for listeners, we're not talking about those Carter brothers, but go yeah, ahead. These, yeah. these guys are from North Carolina via Tennessee and they played here for many years, but I was just mesmerized by them. And I, and then we came back three months later, a whole vacation just to see them play again in Key West. Uh, they became friends and I sent went up to them and I said, you know, can I join your fan club? And, um, uh, and they said, well, we don't have a fan club. Well, can I talk to your manager? We don't have a manager. I said, well, I'll do all of that for free. And literally <laughs> I spent the next five years. I mean, I still do it to, to some extent, even today of promoting them, uh, and, um, and being, starting a fan club in support of them. And it, and I was really bad at it for about three years, but I loved being bad at it. And yeah. they were so patient with me. And, and in the meantime, I met all these other musicians here. I mean, caffeine, Carl, uh, and Jeff Clark, who I've heard is coming back here, and uh, all these great musicians, and Danny Hoy, and and so forth. Uh, just wonderful people, wonderful musicians. I usually, I sometimes go to three or four performances a day when I'm here, and I get to also escape being a nonprofit leader and executive, and someone who sits down with billionaires trying to, you know, uh, bring them onto the whatever cause that I'm working for at the time. I just get to be an anonymous fan of the great musicians who play here and I'll always be coming back. Uh, and, and then became very close with, I just came last year one time just cause of a fundraiser for a bartender at the hogs breath who had a bad accident and Donna Nelson put on a fundraiser for him and it was wildly successful. I flew in just for that. So, uh, this, this place really gets under your skin and, and the, the music is just, uh, the most amazing thing. And just, and just how many of the musicians are just such great people and just and come up to Bill Blue coming up to me in a crowd at the Green Parrot. You know, I'm just nobody, a fan of hundreds. And he just strikes up a conversation with it because he remembers, you know, he saw me at something else a few months ago and the nicest guy. I mean, it's just a wonderful place to take in music and to meet musicians and to get to know them and get to know their stories and, and have them get to know yours. Well, your story is amazing. And again, I'm not doing it justice in our time frame here as we wrap up. Alex Counts, you can check him out again, alexcounts.com. Order the book, When in Doubt, Ask for More. Uh, I'm endorsing just because I know Alex's background. I know it's from the heart. I know it comes from a place of servitude and it comes from a place of experience. And I just think that's amazing that you can kind of wrap it into one book here, 213 just sort of daily reflections almost. And it really is so cool. And it's great for an ADD guy like me to have a book like that. I can just, I can pick it up every day, pick a couple categories and apply those. And I think for a lot of board members and fundraiser types here in Key West, which we're known for, I can't think of a better book to have out there. I know I'll be buying some extras and passing those out. Uh, Alex, I really appreciate it. Anything in particular uh, you want to say to folks in Maryland, uh, any of the students, what are you teaching right now? What's the shout out? Well, just, just to my, to my students, in Maryland, uh, and uh, uh, it's just you know keep keep f- finding the things you're passionate about, and be bold, and be brave, and take risks, uh, and learn from your mistakes in trying to heal the world. Because you know my generation, we've solved a lot of problems, local, national, global, but we've 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 kind of swung and missed it a bunch, and we've created a few. And the world needs change makers and it needs people, whether you're a volunteer on a board or you're taking it as your, li- your life work and your career, uh, make stuff happen. Don't get discouraged from your mistakes. Learn from them and keep going. Man, I hope it is translating the energy and the inspiration as much as Alex is doing it in person. I can, again, tell you the background is there. It's a great 
honor to have you on the show and I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as just as much as I have. I'm, I'm inspired and I think your work and the types of things that people like you do without looking for a thank you or a pat on the back, you just go out and do it. Cornell graduate, you could have probably just gone to Wall Street and done the, the, the walk and you went and traveled the world and, and took on poverty and you continue to do it and, uh, and then change people's lives as a professor and so forth. Thank you. And again, Key West, if you want to come to Key West, these are the types of people, maybe not to Alex's degree all the time, but this is the type of person who could be sitting next to you. And Alex, thanks for letting us meet you and bring you on the show. It's been a real honor. Thank you. All right. We'll catch you guys next week. Uh, Guys and ladies, thanks for listening to the Florida Keys Weekly Show. Always a pleasure. And you can check out this show and others at keysweekly.com. We look forward to catching back up with you next week.